Grab a seat, church. Mm. The story of the Bible. As I already said, I, I want to get high up above the book of Daniel. You know, I was thinking about this during worship. If, if you were going to go visit a new country, just kind of like what we're doing, we're leaving the geography of Hebrews and we're heading back hundreds of years into the geography of the book of Daniel. If you were going to visit a new country, you would spend a little bit of time getting acquainted with the geography and the layout of the location of that country. Perhaps some of the cultural customs and the things that you would want to know. Where is it sit in the whole globe? What continent is it on? What countries does it border? What's the climate? What's the time? What's the culture? What's the... And we're going to do that this morning before we dive right into verse 1 of the book next week. We're going to spend some time getting to know the layout and the overall, the big picture of the book of Daniel. And I need to introduce you to some big Old Testament concepts. I need to introduce you to uh, the fact that we're no longer in the New Testament. We've shifted back into the Old Testament. What does that mean? And, and what was happening at the time that this book was written? And I'm not going to assume that everybody really understands uh, the Old Testament very well. I'm going I'm to sort of try to make sure everyone's up to speed so that we're all ready to plunge into the biblical material uh, with, it, with an understanding of this book. So let's start really big picture. The story of the Bible is actually the story of God in his kingdom. The story of the Bible, okay, is actually the story of God. You're saying, wait, I thought it was a love letter for me. Well, no, not really. It's actually the story of God. It's actually, did you know that the Bible, and this is super weird for us like Western Christian evangelicals to hear, but did you know the Bible is actually not about you? You're in it, okay? You're in it. You're, you're in there. Uh, but it's actually about who? It's about God. And if you read it any other way, you're going to get really twisted and upside down. It's the story about God and God's redemptive work through something called the kingdom of God. And I want to spend some time this morning thinking about the kingdom of God and what Daniel has to teach us about it. So the story of the Bible is the story of God and his kingdom. And it is the story of how, listen, God set up an extension campus here in the earth. You remember when Jesus prays um, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? He's saying, essentially, God... Make your absolute rule manifested on this extension campus just like it is in heaven where you reside. So God desired to, uh, he desired to expand his shalom, that is the Hebrew word for total peace, his shalom, his kingdom reign, his rule. He desired to expand it, so he created the world, the cosmos, and you and I are part of that, humanity, right? And, and it's like this this extension campus of God's kingdom. For the per and he put humans in it for the purpose of partnering with his rule and his reign to bring shalom to the world. So God actually created humans to um, have dominion over the world, to help cultivate the garden and to help invest in, and rule and reign in such a way that would bring God's rule and God's peace to bear on the earth. That's what you were designed to be in a Genesis chapter one world. That's the purpose of humanity. But the Bible also is the story of how sin, listen, how sin and man and the devil formed an unholy rebellion together against God's rule, a mutinous collaboration between the devil and mankind, and uh, ultimately ha has, has chosen to get outside of God's rule, therefore enslaving humanity and all of creation in a fallen captivity and a cursed reality. That is Genesis 3 in a nutshell. Okay, that's Genesis 3 in a, nuts, in a nutshell. Sin and man and the devil ultimately have chosen to, to, to step outside of the shalom rule of God's kingdom, and that happened in Genesis 3. Now, in this it's also, the Bible is also the story of how God is reclaiming his rule, redeeming his people, and recreating his world by replanting creation. I'm not just reading dry words here. I want you to think about this. I'm going to read it again, okay? God's, God is reclaiming his rule, he's redeeming his people, and he's recreating his world by replanting creation with a new seed. 
And the seed is Christ's resurrection life. Okay, Sam, that's a lot of big theology. Uh, but that's the story of the Bible. Okay, and if you and if you and if you don't look for that story, you're actually going to miss the point. Now, here's why this matters. The way that God's kingdom is coming back into power is actually kind of surprising. The way that we often think about power and the way that we'll see power in Daniel a lot of times is that, that, that one force shows more force than the other force and it overtakes that force. But in God's economy, the way that he is, he is bringing the kingdom back under his authority is through surprising means. Rather than a frontal assault... God is regaining power and authority, not by flexing his total sovereignty, but rather by infiltrating creation in an unexpected way. God's kingdom exists within Satan's kingdom, behind enemy lines, in seemingly unthreatening ways. Let me give you an example. I'm going to use a Harry Potter example. So if you were looking for a reason to, to leave this church, like you can use that one if you want. Like, oh, I'm going to talk about Harry Potter on Sunday. Okay. So J.K. Rowling, I remember when I was a kid, that was like the cardinal unforgivable sin. It was like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, read Harry Potter books. Those two things, straight to hell, right? Okay, that, that was bad. Okay, hopefully we're, we're past that a little bit. So J.K. Rowling, um, who's not a believer, but by the way, the meta-narrative of redemption and, 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 and God's um, story, it, it kind of runs in most literature, because I think even subconsciously, most humans know this is the ultimate story. In fact, George Lucas even said that about Star Wars. He said, there's really only one story, and we're all just retelling it over and over again. So J.K. Rowling, she, she probably subconsciously, as a, as a very much a non-believer, um, subconsciously stitched gospel into her story. And here's what it looks like. You have good and you have evil. This paradigm, this duality of kingdoms, Okay. And she creates this whole other world, right, where there's good and there's evil. And the, the sort of the archetype or the chief uh, figure of evil is Lord Voldemort, or should I say the one we do not speak of? Um, if it offends you that I use his name. Yeah, sorry. I've been reading the books, so I'm a little nerdy. Okay, so anyways, so, so, so Voldemort is sort of the, the evil one, right? But here's what Rowling did that was so genius, except it wasn't really her idea, is the way that Lord Voldemort loses is by the most unlikely and the most unthreatening and the most small of means, a, a little baby, right? That this baby would be the one that would ultimately grow up to be the one that would take away his power. That's so interesting. So, so small things. Uh, actually, um, uh, space in his name, guy that wrote Lord of the Rings, help me out, Tolkien. Tolkien did the same thing when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, Okay, the, the ring, this seemingly small thing, and this hobbit, this seemingly unthreatening little creature ends up being the one that d brings the demise to the whole empire of the kingdom of evil. So Harry Potter, little baby, grows up to be an uh, unthreatening 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-old, grows up throughout the movie, ultimately ends up being the demise of the kingdom. Something small grows up to be something threatening. But here's where I really want you to think, okay? In both Rowling's story, the Harry Potter, and, and in Lord of the Rings, evil can't just be taken head on. Evil has to be destroyed from the roots up. So if you read the books of Harry Potter, right, they have to go and they have to destroy all these things called horcruxes. There's this, this, you know, Voldemort found a way to infuse his life to these different objects. So they can't just go kill him or he'll just come back. They have to go kill all of the root system of his evil empire and then they can defeat him. Same thing happens in Lord of the Rings, right? They have to destroy the ring of power before they can destroy, ultimately, where's all this coming from? It's coming from the Bible. Why didn't God in Genesis 4 just come down and, and just take on Satan and his evil and his domain and take it back? He certainly could have, but that's not what he did. He decided to destroy evil from the root system up. And he's decided to invade the story of redemption to come into, into his own story in the most unlikely and hobbit-like kind of a way. Right? To come in as a very, as Isaiah says, a very unimpressive, seemingly very ordinary Jewish man. And he was not pretending to be a man. He was fully God and he was truly man. And he did that because evil needed to be defeated, not from the outside in, but what? From the inside out. 
The gospel is the good news that Jesus is a new seed of an entirely new humanity, that he's a new Adam, a new progenitor, a new uh, heading for all of humanity, that out of his resurrection life, we're going to get an entirely new world. Isn't that cool? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13, 31. Listen, he says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, okay, then this is cool. Jesus is going to unpack the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard, a.k.a. a hobbit, right? Something small, something that you wouldn't think would be threatening, something that can slip behind enemy lines, something that, that appears to not be very strong. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that all the birds of the air might come and make nests in its branches. Here's the idea. What's the seed? The seed is the life of Jesus or the gospel. This small, seemingly insignificant thing of this life of a 33-year-old man who was fully God and truly man who died uh, and, and rose and ascended is a small thing from the outside. It's a small message verbally, but when it takes root, it has astronomical growth. And that's exactly what we've seen happen over the last 2,000 years. The message of the gospel has grown and grown and grown and grown. And it's growing into something. It's growing into an entirely new ecosystem, an entirely new kingdom. That's the idea. Jesus goes on to say the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, something small, something invisible, something that works its way into the whole lump. It says a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So what, Sam? What does all this have to do with the book of Daniel? The answer is that the kingdom often exists and persists behind enemy lines. And the entire book of Daniel takes place behind enemy lines. It doesn't take place in the geography of Palestine or in Israel. It doesn't take place in Jerusalem like most of the biblical literature. It takes place where? In Babylon. In Babylon. Babylon, the great city that we're going to learn more about today. It takes place behind enemy lines, and it's about the kingdom of God expanding through the lives of the smallest and most seemingly powerless. Four young Jewish boys were ripped from their homeland when they were probably in junior high, maybe freshmen in high school. And they become mighty kingdom-building individuals behind enemy lines. And God's power is seen in and through their lives. Isn't that great? And we, guys, listen, we have more in common with these young Jewish men than you probably realize. Because we too are where? Where are we? We're behind enemy lines. We're in Babylon. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm all about America, but we're, we're in Babylon, okay? Thankful for our country, thankful for God's common grace, but let's get real, okay? We live in Babylon. We are in the world, and we have this great commonality, this great solidarity with the book of Daniel, and that we too need to learn what it looks like to live as exiles and sojourners, and this is really where, where Daniel becomes so relevant to us. So Daniel is a story of how God's kingdom exists and persists and expands behind enemy lines, the enemy lines of Satan's kingdom. It's the story of how God is sovereignly protecting and activating his kingdom people for his kingdom purpose until his kingdom comes. So this graphic, which Michael Moore made for us, give it up for Mike. Yeah, he actually drew that. Um, he, he drew that, and it actually looks like a death metal album, which I'm super pumped on. And if you, if you look really closely, there's even blood on the ribs and the bear's mouth, which was my idea, my contribution, you know, because in the Bible it says there's blood. Okay, uh, let's just, let's, let's be literal, okay? What's the tagline? Daniel, kingdom come. Kingdom come. This is the idea of the book of Daniel. We're going to see how God's kingdom is coming and has come and will come. So, you guys excited? Okay. I'm excited. It's going to be a good time. So here, let me give you a, a working definition of what the kingdom of God is. And you might write this down. And I, I didn't think of this. I think Gary Brashears was the first one maybe, or, or maybe he got it from someone else. But there's, here's a working uh, definition of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is this, three things. Kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's power. Okay? 
And you can, if you want next to power in a parenthesis, you can put rule, okay? So it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. Think about a nation. What makes you a nation? What makes a nation? There are certain ingredients that need to be there. You need three things, right? You need nationality, a shared nationality, Okay, we, we're all in this together because we all have the same national heritage or we're all part of this nation together. You have nationality, you have a shared locality. We all live in the same place, within the same borders, within the same space. And we have a shared authority. We are all submitted under the same government. We've all uh, signed on to, if you will, the, the constitution, these rules that sort of bind us, that, that we answer to through our judicial system. So, so those three things create a nation, right? You have a shared nationality, culture. You have a shared uh, uh, locality. We all live within the borders. And we have a shared authority. Those are the three, those are the same three things I just told you the kingdom of God is. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule or God's power, okay? God's people in God's place under God's power. What I want to do is I want this morning to take those three things and, and, and pull on them like biblical threads. And as we pull on each of them one by one, they're going to lead us throughout the biblical narrative to Daniel, where they're all going to intersect with one another, and then they're going to lead us straight to, to Jesus Christ, okay? So if you're an outline person, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at place, people, and power. Place, people, and power. Those are our three categories. So I'm going to attempt to, you know, intro, intro overviews sometimes can be really dry because you just you can give a lot of dates and information. I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try to sprinkle information throughout a bigger picture kind of a, kind of a thing here. So let's start with place. What I want to do for you is I want you to think about how the, how the idea of place informs the book of Daniel. The reader, that's you and I, the reader of Daniel must be personally acquainted with the long sense of placelessness that the Jews were feeling at the time of Daniel's authorship. Okay, so if we're going to understand Daniel, we need to understand this, this deep abiding sense of placelessness that the Jews were feeling when the book of Daniel was written. Let me, let me back up to the, the beginning of pages of the Bible and just walk you through this theme of place in the Bible. So as I already said, God planted people and he put them in a what? In a place. We were designed for a place. We were put in the garden. God made us to have a place. And our place was in the garden. But then Genesis 3 happened. Sin entered and we were kicked out of our place. And now we've all become, all of humanity has become exiles. So the theme of exile, the theme of, of place, it's, it's right there in the beginnings of the book of the Bible. In, the, in the, the book of beginnings in Genesis, we see place, God put us in a place, and then we see exile. God barred us from the place, literally putting angels at the gate to guard mankind, Adam and Eve, from getting in and eating from the tree of life. So exile is this theme, and from Adam forward, all of humanity has been aching for a place, home. Where do we belong? Fast forward the story and God selects his first progenitor, his, his, his first man in the Jewish uh, ethnicity, and that is Abraham. He calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this great promise. The promise is that I'm going to give you a place, a physical location. I'm going to give you dirt, I'm going to give you ground, and then I'm going to do something through your family that's going to be astronomical. So he gives Abraham this promise of this place, but does Abraham get it right away? No, of course not. Abraham has to wait, and he has to sojourn, and he has to camp in tents, and so does Isaac, and so does Jacob. And it leads them all the way, their entire family, until the Jews begin to really multiply. It leads them all the way into captivity, again, placeless, living in Egypt as slaves. So God, in his story of redemption, he delivers Israel, and he says, okay, now it's time for you to go and claim your place. But what happens? Instead of gathering their place, they wander. They wander for 40 years in rebellion because of hardness of heart until the, the whole generation has to die off other than two men. And then finally, we get to the book of Joshua. And if you're continuing to follow this thread of place, you're going to see finally the Israelites are delivered into their place. And that's what the book of Joshua is. It's, it's, the, it's the children of Israel marching on Canaan and, and taking the land that God had promised them. But, but here's the problem. The problem was that the Israelites didn't do what God said to do. They didn't fully remove the locals from the land. They allowed them to stay. They married within them and ultimately led to the demise of Israel because they absorbed their culture, they absorbed their gods, and so their place never really was fully realized. 
Even in the golden era, even in the day of Solomon, even in the day of David, even when, 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 uh, in, when Israel was the united monarchy before it was split into two kingdoms. There was always deep issues in the kingdom of Israel. It was never really the place that they thought it was going to be. Now, I need to explain something very important to, to, to biblical studies, okay? In the Deuteronomic law, which you'll never guess where that's written, Deuteronomy, in the Deuteronomic law, God told the Israelites through Moses, when he made the covenant with Israel, he said, I'll let you stay in your place unless, unless you reject me and you follow after idols and you do not keep the Sabbath and you do not follow the law. God told him that if they didn't do that, he was going to kick them out of their what? Out of their place. He told them that. So, you know, the, the prophets come along and they're prophesying. Jeremiah says, hey, we're, gonna, we're in trouble because fast forward, you know, four, 400 years uh, of, of history and Israel is just continuing and continuing and continuing to not honor the Lord, to not honor Yahweh, to let idols into the temple, to not honor Sabbath. And Jeremiah comes along and he says, God's going to kick you out of your place. You need to be disciplined. You, 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 God's been so patient. Now, interestingly, okay, interestingly, the Sabbath year was never honored by Israel. And do you know how many years Israel rejected honoring the, the Sabbath year? Anybody? Seventy. Now, that's interesting. Seventy years of disobedience. Say, it's actually seventy. Uh, it's, it's every seventh year they were supposed to take a Sabbath year, Right? Um, and then there was the year of Jubilee, which is a whole other thing. So, so 70 Sabbath years worth of time passed where Israel did not obey God. Now, how many years did God say he was going to kick Israel out of their place? 70. Do you think that's a coincidence? I think not. I think God was putting his finger on exactly what it was that he was upset about. And it wasn't just that they weren't keeping a Sabbath year. It's that they weren't worshiping, they weren't following they, they were leaning on their own understanding. They were ruling themselves ultimately. So Jeremiah comes along and he says, God is going to boot you guys out of your place for 70 years. Now, the kingdom at this point had fractured into two. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom would have been uh, Judah, okay, where Jerusalem was. It's actually where we get the name Jews from Judah. And the northern 10 tribes, those, those guys really were bad. I mean, they almost never followed the Lord. And, and actually, they got kicked out of their place way earlier. Like 100 years, the Assyrians marched and deported the northern tribes. But the southern tribes, God was, he, he was more long-suffering with them. But something happened. 605 BC, God caused a nation called Babylon to rise up, overtake the Assyrian Empire, becoming the one world ruling empire of the day, and just as Jeremiah had prophesied, Babylon marched on Jerusalem and took over Jerusalem. And the first thing they did was to deport God's people, to pull them out of their place. Now, they didn't do it all at once. It happened in waves. Babylon came in, and, and they took wave number one, wave number two, and wave number three. The first wave was the cream of the crop. It was the best and the brightest. It was the, the good-looking, the educated, the people that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar felt like he could really use in his administration. And you'll never guess which guys were led away in the first deportation. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These are the characters of the book Daniel, if, you, if, you're, if you're first time in this material. Okay, so, so the first deportation of Babylon was these three men. They were taken... Um, for the purpose of discipline, God allowed Babylon to rise up and pull them away from their place in order to instruct uh, Israel, as we'll see. So, so what? So the Jews are wandering in the book of Daniel. We find them with a real sense of placelessness. And you could just imagine the sentiment of the Jews on, in exile. They're thinking, God, I thought you had delivered us into our place, and now we're exiled. Now we're living in Babylon. Now we don't even have the temple. Now we don't even have the, the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, good hermeneutics, hermeneutics is the, the, the study of interpretation, the, the, uh, the rules of interpretation. Good hermeneutics asks this question when you study a book of the Bible. The question is, why did this material, that is the book of Daniel, why did this material matter to its original audience? Okay, why was Daniel written down? Who, who was the original audience that benefited from it? What was the purpose? And the answer is this, to encourage the placeless people of God of two things. 
okay, to encourage the placeless people of God, two things. First is this, write it down, that God is, in fact, preparing a place for us. He is, in fact, preparing a place for us. Now, if you keep reading past the book of Daniel, you'll find out that that place was not anything that was going to be delivered before Jesus came. Okay, let me just give you a really quick Here's the story. After the 70 years of exile, read the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. It's the story of how God let some of the Jews go back into the homeland and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. But here's the reality when they went back to their place. It was very underwhelming. They rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't really like it used to be. It wasn't like the glory days. And, and even though they had some small seasons of sovereignty, ultimately they almost always were enslaved and ruled by some other empire. Okay, whether that was the Greeks, whether that was the Persians, they were almost always ruled on the whole time leading up to Christ by someone else. In the New Testament setting, Jesus enters into the world, and what do you know? They're in their place, but they're under captivity. Ruled by who? Rome, right? With a puppet king who was claiming to be for the people, but he wasn't. Herod. It was a perilous place. So, what about place? What about this place? God promised a place. God put us in the garden. And then God told Abraham he was going to give us a place. When is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Well, here's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the fulfillment and the first installment in the true and final place for God's people. What did Jesus say? He said, I'm going to make a place for you. Now, here's where I want to get into Daniel a little bit. Go to chapter 2, verse 35. Chapter 2, verse 35. Let me, let me get you uh, actually up to verse 44. Let me get you up to speed, okay? Uh, and we'll dive more into this in a few weeks. Daniel interprets a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. And the dream is this. It's a statue. It's a giant statue of a man and it's different metals. The head is one metal and the chest is another metal and so on and so forth. And Nebuchadnezzar is really confused about what this dream means. And nobody can interpret it for him. So finally, Daniel shows up, and Daniel gives the interpretation. And it turns out that this statue represents the sum total of human authority, all the empires. And each medal and each part of the, the, the statue is representing a different empire that was going to rise up, starting with the Babylonians, and then moving into the Medo-Persians, and then moving into the Greeks, and then eventually to the Romans. And so the sum total of this statue represents all human authority. And here's what I want you to see. In chapter 2, verse 43, what happens in the vision is that this stone comes out of heaven, this stone unhewn by hands, and it completely annihilates and demolishes the statue. But that's not all. After this stone demolishes the statue, it actually becomes a mountain. It, it replaces the statue, is the idea. So here's what Daniel says in his interpretation in verse 43 of chapter 2. He says, As you know, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together. We'll get into that later. Just as iron does not mix with clay. 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which is what? God's people in God's place, under God's power, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the, capital G, God, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is for sure. This is so cool. What Daniel is seeing here is he is seeing that all the kingdoms of the world are ultimately going to be crushed and replaced by a superior king and that superior kingdom that comes with him. Who is the rock? Who is the stone? It's Christ. It's the same thing Jesus said in the New Testament when he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's going to grow. And what do we see in the book of Revelation? 
okay? And, and, and just so you guys know, we're going to talk about Revelation a lot because Daniel is the Old Testament version of, of Revelation, okay? In the book of Revelation, we see a new Jerusalem, a new city, a new kingdom, a new ecosystem coming down out of heaven prepared for us. It's the same idea. God's kingdom is invading our space, invading our kingdom. So why was the book of Daniel written to the original audience? It was to encourage the Jews who were in captivity and to encourage you and I that God is in fact preparing a place for us. That's why Jesus left. He said, I go to make rooms for you in my father's house. I go to prepare a place. And when he comes back, he is that stone. He will destroy all human authority, all evil human government, replace it, set up a new administration and a new world and a new creation, and you and I get to populate that world with Christ on the throne forever. Isn't that cool? This is what the book of Daniel teaches us about. But listen, not only is the book of Daniel telling us that God is in fact preparing a place for us, listen, it's also telling us that God is in fact preparing us for that place. Let me say it again. God is not only preparing a place for us, God is preparing us for that place. Because you might say, well, why is God taking so long? Can't, I, mean, I mean, can't we have it now? Don't you think that the Jews in exile were feeling that a little bit? Really? 70 years? Like, we got to wait that long? Can't we just have it now? Wait, what are we waiting for? Okay, and the answer to that is God is preparing us for that place. Listen, placelessness, and I don't think that's a word, I just made it up. Placelessness teaches us that the most important thing, listen to me, the most important thing is not our place, but it's his presence within it. The most important thing about your eternal life is not that you're going to go to a place, it's that God is going to be there. I remember hearing John Piper ask a question one time that just stopped me in my tracks. He said, if you could go to heaven and have everything that you've ever wanted in this life, perfect health, perfect prosperity, all the people that you love, all the entertainment you can imagine, all the health and wealth and prosperity and adventure, if you could go to heaven for all of eternity and have all of those things forever, but God was not there, would you want to go? That's a really telling question, actually. It's a really telling, telling question because why you want to go to heaven is the most important question. Is it because you want to be with God? Is it because you want to be with him? The reality of the kingdom is that it's a place where God will now be with man. Uh, we don't have time to go there, but in the book of Ezekiel, which is a counterpart to Daniel, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. He lived through the ex exile. Ezekiel has this vision while he's in Babylon of the Spirit of God leaving the temple, which is significant of the fact that, that God's presence was no longer focused on, on Israel, ethnically. It leaves the temple, and where does it show up? It shows up in Babylon. God's presence meets his people in exile. And here's where we have so much in common with those that lived in the book of Daniel, that we are waiting for God's ultimate realization, God's ultimate culmination of his future place. But while we wait, his presence came with us. Jesus didn't go home and not leave something with us. He left his spirit, his presence within us. So even though we're living in exile, we have his presence living within us. And what we have to look forward to is not just an eternal existence. We look forward to an eternal existence with God in the midst of us, which is what Revelation says. It says that God will be in the midst of his people. He is Emmanuel, which is God with us. The whole point of the gospel is that man and God can once again be in harmony and locality in God's place together forever with our God. God. And we learned this in Hebrews. Let me just remind you of it. Hebrews 13, 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So like Daniel and like the exiles, we live face forward. We live in a world that's not our own. We live as sojourners. We live as exiles. We live in a different economy. We live in this world, but we are not of this world, as Jesus said about us. He prayed that we would not be removed from this world, but that we would be protected in this world, that we would be lights and kingdom outposts in this world, that we would glorify God in this world. 
That's our job. That's our goal. That's why. So let me say it again. He's preparing a place for us and he's preparing us for that place. He is preparing us to inhabit his eternal resting place. So we've talked about place a lot. I've said that word like 50,000 times. We've talked about place. Let's talk about people. Because again, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's power. Let's talk about people. Daniel, this is important. Daniel teaches us this very important truth that who we are does not change with where we are. Let me say that again. Daniel teaches us a very important truth, that who we are does not change with where we are. The people of Israel struggle with an idolatrous relationship with their place and with their ethnicity. They started to become arrogant. They started to become conceited. They started to think that, that what made them special and what made them spiritually, spiritual is that they, were, that they were Jews and that they had the temple. So what God was trying to do in removing them from Babylon was God was trying to remove Babylon from them. He was trying to get them to think differently. He was trying to get them to realize that just because they were ethnic Israel didn't mean they were spiritual Israel. Sam, what's the difference? Read Romans. Romans will tell you this, that there's a difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Bless you. (laughs) Ethnic Israel is someone who is in the bloodline of Israel. They, They belong to one of the 12 tribes. Spiritual Israel is someone who is saved by faith, by God's grace, part of the covenant community of God. So you could be a Gentile and be part of true Israel if your faith is in Yahweh, if if you're being faithful to the covenant of God. Okay? So there's a difference. And what the exile teaches the Jews and it teaches us is that what makes you God's people is not where you live and it's not what family you were born into. It's whether or not you trust God. So the exiles remain his people even though they're geographically removed. Now, Here's what happens. Satan is he's, he's intent on stripping the Jews of everything Jewish about them when he brings them into the exile. And the assimilation of the Babylonians was the perfect tool in Satan's hand to try to remove the Jewishness from the Jews. See, what the Babylonians did, their, their, their play, the, the way that they, they assimilated cultures was not what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians were famous for um, coming in and, and basically, you know, leveling the city and, and taking captives and just murdering everybody. And it was like this, this crazy thing where they just came in and de- demolished a place. The Babylonians were very different. They were a different breed. They would come in and they would lead people out of their home and they would reintegrate them and reintroduce them into Babylon, which is a city, by the way, a massive city, 14 miles by 14 miles. It was an impressive city. And what they would do is, and I don't know if this is a real word, but I'm using it, is they would, they would enculturate them, reinculturate them. Is that a word? Sounds good. Sounds good. Part of being dyslexic, I, I, think, I think I'm dyslexic. I think you can just make up words and they sound real. They, they reinculturated them, okay? That's what they did. I like it. Um, those little red lines under your words when you type them, and it's like, oh. If you right-click and put learn word, then it, then it, it, then it forever believe it. It's a real word. They reinculturated them. I like it. I'm going with it. The way that Babylon would do this, the way that Babylon would do this was by relocation, by, listen, stimulation. They, they had pleasures, incredible wealth, incredible high, incredibly high quality of life in Babylon. So they didn't have to, they didn't have to try to like force these guys to like Babylonian, Babylonian culture. All they had to do was take them out of their home and put them in Babylon. And they would slowly start to love Babylonian culture. Sound familiar? Uh, through indoctrination and through slow transformation. This is how the Jews would start to, over the, the years, they would start to lose their sin. Not just the Jews, but all the nations overall. Babylon brought people from everywhere. This great melting pot. They brought them in. They just put them into their massive, amazing mega city, and, and people started to lose a sense of their true culture and identity. And so that's exactly what happens with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says, bring me the best and brightest. Bring them into the town. Put them in school. Give them a healthy stipend. Give them a new haircut. Give them a new dress. Give them a new name. Let them enjoy Babylon. They're going to love it so much, they're going to forget about Israel, and they're never going to want to go back. This is an important point. The world is very seductive. Don't make the mistake when you're discipling your kids of trying to tell them 
that the world is really just, you know, I had a lot of youth pastors try to tell me, oh, sin is just bleh, and the world's boring, and, and the party's in the church. And I'm like, oh, really? Are you sure? Because it lo- looks like the world's a party to me. Like, they're all having fun, and they're not getting caught yet. I mean, look, look at my friends, you know? The reality is, is that, that Satan disciples worldly, or Satan disciples people in the world, and he disciples them with yeses, not noes. Did you know that? The world is attractive because the world gives you yeses. It tells you all the things that you can do. And here's the problem with, with purity culture and religious, uh, you know, religious systems in, in, in Christianity is we're, we're all about the noes, right? And so our kids grow up and they're like, man, the world's like, yes, yes, yes. And mom and dad are like, no, 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 no. Christianity sucks. Christianity's boring. It's a no religion. The world is yes. Sorry, can I say sucks? Was that bad? I, I think I got yelled at one time for saying that. I'm sorry. Um, but it's true. Okay, the world... Literally, I think I got an email one time, so don't email me. Um, the, <clears throat> it's a generation where sucks was a bad word, and then my generation is like, who cares? Uh, anyways, the world disciples through yeses. They say, here, here's what you can do. And Christians, unfortunately, we disciple the opposite. But let me, let me just put it out there that I think we should flip that. I think the power of the gospel is that the gospel is not a no, it's a yes. It's a yes that we have been restored and now we have God. We get access to God. We have his riches, his spirit, his life, his plan, his work. It's a yes. So don't, don't give your kids no's. Give your kids yeses because that's what the world's doing. So all that Babylon, thank you, Heidi. I love you. I appreciate your exuberance. Um, but, so what, let's do what the world's doing. Let's, let's focus on the yeses that we get in Christ because the world is pulling hard. And let's be careful not to undersell the, the, the reality of what the world has to offer, okay? You know, I mean, a lot of kids grew up being told, oh, you know, uh, the world, those are just a bunch of snarling, idiotic atheists that just, you know, um, they're evil and they don't have any fun. And then they go off to school and they meet some winsome, you know, seemingly kind, nice, awesome professor that, that's an atheist. And they're like, oh, my parents lied to me. The world's very attractive. It's very intelligent, okay? Just keep that in mind. But here's what's so incredible to me, is that a 15-year-old, Daniel, managed to be reinculturated. Literally, Nebuchadnezzar put him through his school. That means that he taught him history. He taught him magic. They were the Chaldeans. They learned magic. He taught, they taught him new languages. They gave him a new name. They taught him history. They taught him, taught him economics. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was grooming these guys to bring them up to become his cabinet, his counselors, his his. Uh, his chief leaders, but yet a 15-year-old managed to hold on to his true identity. What kind of parents did Daniel have? That's what I want to know, right? What, what, man, whatever, whoever spent those 15 years teaching Daniel about the superiority, superiority of following Yahweh did a good job by God's grace. So our job is to counteract the deformation of what the world is doing. The world is trying to deform us in our thinking. Don't make the mistake of thinking the world is passive. It's not. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, I can go, I can watch the world's movies and I can live in the world's spaces and I can uh, turn on the world's thinking and it's not going to affect me. Yes, it is. You're not floating in a lake. You're floating down a stream. And if you're not swimming, you're floating. Okay? We live in Babylon and Babylon is intent on indoctrinating you. So what is the job of the Christian? What is the job of the church? Discipleship which is what? It's reformation. It's forming our thinking and forming our doing and forming our worship. And that's what the church's job is. It's to help Christians form their thinking. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is why we let God's word do that work in us. So here's the point. Uh, who we think we are always informs what we think we should do. The reason Daniel could stand firm is because he knew who he was. So identity always becomes the focus. So we talked about place. We talked about people. Let's just end here with talking about power. Let's talk about power. Babylon is the biblical shorthand for the satanic system of man. Okay? If you read the Bible, you need to know that. Babylon root word, Babel, which comes up in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, which again is representative of man's best effort to live life without God. Babylon is the archetype. It is the the code word for man's system. That's why in the New Testament, when the the apostles are writing to the Christians, 
they talk about Babel and they're actually talking about Rome because it was a code word to refer to whatever evil human institution was ruling and reigning at that time. So Daniel is literally about God's people living behind enemy lines in the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God's, uh, or the godless government, man-centered culture, a.k.a. the world. Okay, that is the world. And power and rule is a biblical thread that reaches all the way back to Genesis 1. God made man as a co-regent to rule and to cultivate, but the fall was man choosing autonomous self-rule over complementary self-surrender. Okay, Genesis 3 was man saying, I want to rule myself. Okay, and out of Genesis 3 flows Babylon. We get people multiplying and they all want to rule self. So the biblical paradigm is this, two kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of man. The kingdom of God is typically um, personified with New Jerusalem, and the kingdom of man is typically personified or, or, or typified by Babylon. And the story of the Bible is, which kingdom's going to win? Which kingdom's going to win? Now, the story of Daniel is going to encapsulate that. It's going to, to, to capture these, these big concepts Daniel's narrative flips the script, though, because it appears at the beginning, as we'll see next week, it appears that God is not powerful in the beginning of Daniel. Because here's Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, marching on Jerusalem, taking it over with no problem, and literally stripping the, 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 the vessels of the temple out of the temple and taking them back to Babylon so they can party with them. So the beginning of Daniel seems like God's losing, seems like God's kingdom's actually not more powerful. But we know the true story. We know the true story, and that is that God is actually so powerful, he's so sovereign that he raised up the entire Babylonian empire just so he could discipline his kids. Isn't that crazy? You think the Babylonians, you think Nebuchadnezzar just so happened to come to power? Or did God allow it for the very unique purpose of removing Babylon from Israel? Because there was, there was very much a worldly thinking in them, and God wanted to work that out. So I'll close here. Daniel reminds us of two important realities regarding the power of God. Number one, God's power is sovereign over all principalities and powers, providentially using their faculties to accomplish his ultimate purpose. You see this image that Mike drew for us? You see the beasts? We're going to get to that, okay, in Daniel chapter 7. These beasts, we're going to see them in these apocalyptic visions. Each of them represents a different empire. But collectively, in totality, they represent the system of man, the kingdom of the world. But who is the figure in the middle? Remember what, what Jesus loved to call himself? The son of what? Son of man. The son of man is the central figure of Daniel chapter 7. And I wish we had time to go there. We'll get there. We're going to get there. But in Daniel chapter 7, this incredible thing happens. These beasts are rising up, and they're powerful, and they're intimidating, and they're beast-like. And then this son of man comes. Actually, the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, anoints the son of man, and all of the beasts are crushed and destroyed by this figure. And he sets up an eternal kingdom. So, so what do we learn in the book of Daniel? We learn that God is sovereign over all nations. And people have asked me a lot lately, Sam, why are we teaching through the book of Daniel? Are you crazy? I mean, there's some crazy stuff in here. Yeah, like that, that's a, that's a multi-headed animal. Um, and that's a lion with wings. So yeah, I hope you stick around for that. It's going to be awesome. Okay, why are you teaching Daniel? Okay, and here's the reality. The reality is that we need to be reminded who's boss. Man, don't we? Like, it's not Russia. It's not China. It's not the U.S. It's not some alliance of federations. It's not the U.N. It's not COVID. It's nothing. It's God. He's sovereign. He's high. He's lifted up. The Son of Man is coming. The Ancient of Days has given him all authority. He's crushing the beast. He's going to set up forever his eternal kingdom, and we're in that, man. We just need to be reminded of that, right? Amen. I love that you guys are excited about this, too. We see God's sovereignty in this book. And let me read again the passage that we read at the beginning. Daniel chapter 2, 20. We'll close here. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. God is sovereign 
over our problems, and God is present inside our problems. All right, we're going to see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get thrown in the furnace. God is in the midst of that furnace with them. God is, enters into the exile with his people. He's preserving his people. He's sovereign over his people. I just want to ask you, do you really believe that? And the book of Daniel is going to help us believe that. The book of Daniel is going to remind us that oftentimes God's kingdom power comes through the weakest and the smallest of things. What could possibly be victorious about God letting his people be conquered and ripped away and taken into some foreign land and indoctrinated for 70 years? How could God possibly undo evil through that? How could God possibly undo evil by letting his son come in the frailty of a man and be murdered by the religious people and by the Romans? God is destroying evil from the root system out. God is destroying evil by destroying evil's hold. He can't just come in and take on Satan head first. He needs to take the power and the dominion from the inside out. Evil needs to be destroyed. Sin needs to be destroyed. And that's why God's redemptive plan is to enter into his story, to let himself become an exile to let himself, God the Son, be ripped out of his home, out of his land, and come into a foreign place in order that he might redeem us through his sacrifice. The gospel is dripping in the book of Daniel. Jesus is on every page. I can't wait to study it with you guys. Would you stand with me? Father, just want to declare once again that you are sovereign that you are high and lifted up. Jesus, you are the son of man, the one who has been given all authority by the ancient of days. And beasts come and beasts go and power comes and empires come and institutions come. But Jesus, you are forever and your throne will never fade. We live in the already, not yet. We're waiting like exiles but just like our brothers and sisters who lived through the exile, we too know that we have this hope that you are coming and that you're preparing a place for us. And Lord, I pray that we'd be in this culture, but not of this culture. That we wouldn't be against the people that are in it, that we would be looking to save them out of it. Lord Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is your people in your place under your power, and that through Jesus, we have now become your people, and we are in the place that we're supposed to be, and we are living out of the, res- the, the stores and the, the, the resources of your power under your rule. Thank you that we are part of your kingdom. Lord, help us to live in a way that reflects that. Bless Philippi Church as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day.